This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello, and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen, about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is senior correspondent at National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology, and director of the Center for the Study of Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. He is also affiliated professor of spirituality at the Oblate School of Theology in San Antonio, Texas. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. This is our last episode of 2023 and our last episode of the season. I hope that you both both are doing well. Heidi, how have you been? I'm great. I'm great. Happy Advent or Blessed Advent, whatever we say to folks. I'm getting a jump on the Christmas celebrating. Last weekend, my mother, my sister, my daughter, and I got together for our annual cookie baking weekend. More than 1,200 cookies were oh baked gosh. and wow. frosted. <laughs> and we actually did it in one day. <laughs> That's wild. We're very assembly line, but they're very beautiful and tasty, and we divide them by three, and so I have cookies to share with neighbors and family. But I also just wanted to say, give a shout out to my friend Cameron Bellum, who has created really nice Advent reflections that I've been using that are based on the homilies of St. Oscar Romero. So they're just weekly, and they're based on the Sunday scripture reading. So I'm doing a little spiritual thing for Advent. How is your Advent going, Daniel? Are you doing grading for Advent? <laughs> <laughs> it is beginning, and it is the season. I wrote a column last week about Advent kind of sneaking up on us, and it's affecting me that way as well. But yeah, it's been a, it's a crazy time of year, as you alluded to. Last time we talked, it was right before Thanksgiving. Since then, I was traveling for a board of trustees meeting. As this episode drops on Thursday, I'll be heading to London, so I'll be in the United Kingdom for a couple of days giving some lectures there. So for my British friends, if you're in and around the city of London or can get there on Saturday or Sunday, follow my social media. I can give you more information. You'll find it there. So I'm excited about that. Also, a shout out to our 
Jewish friends, I know that tomorrow after this episode drops, Hanukkah begins. And so we wish you all the best as we celebrate Advent in our own tradition. But yeah, Heidi, you're right. It's grading season. That's the predominant season for those of us who who are in the Church of the Academy, in addition to the Church of Jesus Christ. And yeah, so I look forward to getting through that. But it's been a busy semester, as listeners know from our regular checking in. And I'm looking forward to hopefully a little bit of a respite so I can enjoy at least the O antiphons as we gear up toward Christmas, if not the full season of Advent. David, are you also in this season of grading? I am in the season of grading, and you mentioned a kind of slowdown on the horizon. And I've mentioned a couple times before, in the spring semester 2024, I will be on sabbatical. And that means that I will have a great deal of rest awaiting me, which I'm very much looking forward to. And even though I will be off from my teaching duties at the Institute of Pastoral Studies, and therefore I won't have grading in the spring, I will still have administrative responsibilities there. I still work in a couple of organizations as in the leadership of both the Association of Jesuit Colleges and Universities, one of the sub-networks there, and also the Society for Comparative Research and Iconic and Performative Texts, where I'm the president. So I'll still be doing those duties, and I'll be writing a lot in the spring, but I'm really looking forward to just getting a different rhythm. And in anticipation for that, I have begun already to do some things that I'm going to carry forward into the spring semester. I have upped my Duolingo, so now I have added French and Polish to my language studies. I'm excited about that. And also, I've begun, again, writing morning pages. And for those that are unfamiliar with what this is, you get up in the morning, and the first thing that you do is you basically write 750 words that nobody else is going to see ever but it kind of gets your writing juices flowing. And I've been doing that pretty consistently for the past week, and I'm excited to have it continue through the spring. And as we're all kind of getting ready for Advent, you mentioned the O antiphons. And for listeners, I want to make sure that they know that we've done a couple of special segments on Advent and the various aspects of Advent. I'll link them in the show notes. David, I didn't realize you were going on sabbatical. That's so great. Congratulations. And I love that you're doing like pre-sabbatical, getting used to your new schedule even before it starts. That's so cool. One of the ways that I manage to stay productive, and people sometimes ask me this question because I do a lot of things, and the way that I do it is by getting things scheduled into a regular rhythm. And so at the beginning of December, and I just did this and I'm excited about it, I buy a new hard drive for the work of the next next year. And so I'm, I spend the month of December and I've already begun doing it this month, putting all the things in place so that when we start into 2024, I basically can hit the ground running and things are ready to go. So this is a similar kind of thought to buying a hard drive and getting it ready for January 1st. I'm trying to get the habits in place so that I don't have to work from scratch when the new year starts. You inspire, you inspire me. (laughs) That's very kind. Thank you. Well, listeners, as I mentioned, this is our last episode of this season. So we will be taking a little bit of a break over the holidays and we'll be back in January with season 14, which just amazes me. But for this episode, what we have coming up are three segments. 
We're going to be talking about the United Nations Environmental Conference, COP28, which is going on right now as we're recording this. Heidi has done an interview with Bishop John Stowe of Kentucky, and we'll be doing at the end of the episode one of our famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, pop culture roundups, where we talk about what we've been looking at, listening to, and watching over the past few months. So all that is in store. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Please stay with us. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. This week in Expo City, Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates, world leaders and stakeholders have gathered for the 28th annual United Nations Climate Change Conference, perhaps better known in news reporting by the name COP28. Nearly three decades ago, leaders gathered in Rio de Janeiro for a summit and launched the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Listeners may recall that the 21st COP session in 2015 led to the so-called Paris Agreement, which urged but did not have mechanisms to require or enforce international action to limit the global temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels by the end of the century, and to act to adapt to the already existing effects of climate change. The meetings so far have been both ambitious and contentious. The United Nations website for the event states in bold language that, quote, climate action can't wait, end quote, and that the science on climate change is clear. Meanwhile, according to National Public Radio and other reports, Sultan al-Shaber, the head of the United Nations climate talks underway in Dubai, insisted in a press conference on December 4th that there is no science to support phasing out fossil fuels to avoid catastrophic warming. Sultan al-Jaber's remarks were quickly criticized, but they speak to the larger issues at play at COP28. For example, Ray Dalio, founder of the asset management firm Bridgewater Associates and a COP28 participant, said in a press conference that any action on the climate must focus on the profit motive and financial incentives or it will not be successful. In contrast, Pope Francis sent remarks to COP28 that said in plain language that we must find, quote, a new way of making progress together, unquote emphasizing that decisive change must be made in four key sectors, including energy efficiency, renewable sources, the elimination of fossil fuels, and education in lifestyles that are less dependent on fossil fuels. David, the leaders of COP28 seem to be saying one thing. The Pope appears to be calling for a different approach. How are you thinking about this? What should we be thinking? Well, I'm reminded of the way in which the 1980s advocacy group ACT UP changed its language recently from silence equals death to, I think, the more decisive slogan, capitalism equals death. And I'm thinking about that in the context of Ray Dalio's remarks, which I have placed in the show notes. So if you get a chance, go back and listen to what he said. But basically, it's the same line, that we can't find the money to do this unless we can entice those at the very top of the 1% of the 1% to give a crap about the fact that the planet is dying. And we have to make it profitable. I think that is an abominable approach and that the real kind of lack of effective regimes for controlling 
climate emissions and the real lack of effective regimes to hold to account the corporations that have been basically poisoning and killing the planet for the last 50 years plus that is a remarkable it's a remarkable reality that we cannot imagine even the possibility that we could hold these folks to account and that's why i really like what pope francis is saying he's not talking about business as usual but rather he is challenging just as he did in laudato si back in 2015 he is challenging us not to simply have kind of cosmetic solutions within a a, a very stable structure but to upset the structure itself and to begin to think about new ways of relating to one another that actually take into account the livelihood, the flourishing of the least of these among us, who Pope Francis often calls the poor, those that are that have been denied the dignified agency of their own destiny. And so I want to take up Pope Francis's challenge. I think that what's happening at COP28 is largely window dressing, and I'm very cynical about it. But I'd be interested in what the two of you think. Well, obviously, Pope Francis wasn't able to go because of his health. And I think that was disappointing because him being there in person could have been even more powerful. But as you said, David, his message, which was read, was still very strong. I also wanted to point out something that I thought was kind of interesting. And our EarthBeat editor, Stephanie Clary, pointed out in her e-newsletter this week, which is that the U.S. bishops actually said something this time. When Pope Francis's uh, document, Laudate Deum, came out a couple months ago, we even at NCR had done an editorial because the U.S. Bishops Conference response was like two sentences. It was very underwhelming. And of course, we all know that the U.S. Bishops Conference continues to focus quite a bit on the other life issue of abortion, even deciding to call it again, the preeminent issue in their document for voting and citizenship, which they just re-upped at their meeting in November. But right before the COP meeting, they did have a statement, and this came from the head of the Committee on Justice and Human Development, and then also the Committee on International Justice and Peace, that was quite strong and that actually used the word preeminent now it's qualified a little bit, calling global, calling decarbonization the preeminent environmental challenge faced by all nations. So, so often in this podcast or in my work at NCR, we're often calling the bishops to task for not doing enough. And of course, they could always be doing more. But I was pleasantly surprised by a strong statement from the U.S. Bishops Conference in advance of COP28. Yeah, I was happy to see that too. I think I given my years of experience, probably fall on the side of that latter comment you made, Heidi, that oftentimes I'm, I could, I would prefer to see something stronger, something more kind of decisive, but something is better than nothing and nothing has been this sort of language from the USCCB on issues related to climate change and the climate crisis for a while. So that's, that is heartening. Just on this note of the quote unquote preeminent issue around abortion and politics in the U.S., I mean, I keep going back to something I said about four or five years ago that I stand by today as a segue to talking about maybe Pope Francis, which is that if there's no habitable planet, there's no life at all. So the fact that the climate crisis is a life issue that affects all life, human life, born, unborn life, future life, current life, the life of non-human creatures, the life of the planet itself – to me, seems like a logical preeminent issue that supersedes all others. Because 
it doesn't do any good to prevent abortions or to support parents who are carrying children to term or something like this if there's not a world or a future for them to live in. So I just feel like ethically it's worth stating, which brings me to, to the point you were making, David, about the role of capital in all of this and the financial incentives. One of, one of the courses I'm, I've taught this fall is a course on environmental sustainability and theology. And it's a tri-campus course. It's, it involves faculty and students from Notre Dame, Holy Cross College, and St. Mary's College. And it's been a wonderful experience. We had a guest lecturer very early in the semester who was talking about, from a scientific perspective, a really substantive, very interesting kind of presentation on the current state of human-affected climate change and what that looks like in real time. But then this guest lecturer spoke at the end kind of extemporaneously about, well, where do we go from here? How do we change this? We see the signs. The data is clear. What do we do about this? And his proposal was exactly the same as Dalio's, this idea that we have to work with industry, we have to work with the market in order to incentivize better practices. And you know what you were saying, David, about Laudato Si is exactly right. Pope Francis has criticized this overtly and has done so for at least eight years. And he does this under the heading of the technocratic paradigm. And he says, we can't just simply be passive and say, well, the invisible hand of the market is going to solve this, or that the technology that we've used that has led us into this global climate catastrophe is going to get us out of it. We see this in the U.S. Southwest right now, where there is a very serious water concern. The Columbia River, for instance, is drying up. And one of the proposals that's being seriously considered is desalinizing water on the Mexican shore of the Pacific Ocean and then piping that desalinated water to the U.S. Southwest through another country, basically through Mexico. And as one friar I used to live with to say about all kinds of things, he said, I, I can't see how that could possibly go wrong, right? Obviously, that's a really, it's a Herculean effort technologically, but it's also a deeply concerning kind of geopolitical move. All of this is to say that capital incentivization, the technological sort of solutions are not going to be sufficient. We have got to change our behaviors. Well, what I want to add to that is when you go to or when you look at who goes to these things like COP28 or the World Economic Forum, you see the same rogues gallery of usual suspects. They are high finance capitalists, and they are the 21st century equivalent of the industrialists of the Gilded Age. So people like Bill Gates and other folks like that. And I want to draw this back to exactly what you were mentioning about Pope Francis's remarks. In Laudato Si in the third chapter, Pope Francis says that we tend to think that those that have great influence and the ability to have coercive control over others, so either state leaders or those that, that have a lot of economic control or coercion, that somehow those are the people that are going to be the shepherds of progress and that we can trust that they will have our best interests at heart. But what I really appreciate about Pope Francis is that he reminds us in chapter two of Laudato Si that they haven't had our best interests at heart and that what we as Catholics are called to work 
for is not the enrichment of small numbers of financiers, but rather something called the universal destination of goods, that the world is common property for all of us, and that as we think about the ways in which we create new systems for the 21st and, God willing, the 22nd century, we will actually move towards the universal destination of goods instead of the kind of exclusive control regimes that we've had thus far under capital and feudalism, that we can move beyond this to an actual common wheel, if you will. So I think just parenthetically, I think it's this kind of talk from Pope Francis that you're praising is what gets him in trouble with more conservative Catholics, especially here in the West or in the United States, is that it's those economic interests that are often at the heart of some of the right-wing Catholicism that we see. Now, I do think that at events like COP28, and I'll refer people to some of the great coverage that NCR's Earthbeat is having of every step of the conference— The idea is to have faith voices be stronger there, to have more of a voice from not just Pope Francis, but from all religions. Now, the Vatican has special status, right, because it's not just there representing a religion, it's representing a state, and they became a member, and so that's why Pope Francis was able to give, or not give, his talk at the beginning. But but I think that they just, I think the latest story was about this faith pavilion for the first time. They have this geographic space where all the faith events can be held, and I just think the idea is as we have faith voices be a larger voice in this conversation, maybe we can move more towards what you're talking about, David. Well, I think everything that's been said, I agree with, and I certainly am with Pope Francis in his loving and respectful but strong critique of the system as it stands. I I guess I, I struggle at times as I find myself right now, which might surprise listeners, that I'm kind of at a lack of, facing a lack of words, a lack of something to say, because I feel like it's all been said before. And so like other sort of structural systemic issues. This isn't going to be solved overnight. It's not going to be solved by any one person or one nation state. But I do like what Pope Francis said toward the end of Laudate Deum, where he said that every little bit matters. And so we shouldn't lose hope. We should all do our part, try to, as he says in Laudato Si, embrace and engage in ecological conversion. What can I do personally? What can I do communally? What can I do on the national level and beyond to respond to the call that I think God is placing before us, this care for the common home that is our responsibility, and care for one another, the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor. What I would simply add to that is the one thing that has shifted on the Catholic front is this concept of synodality that has been really bubbling up over the last three years. And I think At the heart of that concept is the notion that every voice matters. In the similar spirit to what you were saying, Dan, is the end of Laudato Deum saying, every little bit helps, every voice matters. And thus far, we have had global decision-making that has involved the exclusion of most of the voices that are affected. And synodality is a Catholic path to including those voices in a way that has not been tried before. And to the extent that we as Catholics can get excited by that as a mechanism for listening and for self-governance, if you will, towards a future that is 
very unknown right now. If we can embrace this in our Catholic imagination and really invest ourselves in the true inclusion of the voices at the margins that is the promise of the synodal process, we might actually have some hope here to begin to move the lever on something because 1.2 billion Catholics really getting energized about the voice of the poor and the care of the flourishing of the poor might actually move the needle in a way that other kind of movements that lack those numbers and lack that kind of organization might not be able to do. So I still remain hopeful, but it is a guarded hope because to the extent that we as Catholics are committed to business as usual, it will only be business. To the extent that we're committed to something different and new, there is the possibility of a real sustaining commonwealth for the poor that will actually be something different for the remainder of our century. So let's pray about it, and let's continue to talk about it, and let's continue especially to listen about it. And listeners, we are grateful that you are with us in these conversations and these journeys, and we are grateful for the ways that you in your own local parishes are trying to bring synodality into the conversation of the Catholic Church. We're going to leave this here for now. I'm sure that we will come back to it in our next season. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment with Heidi's interview with Bishop John Stowe. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf with today's guest, Bishop John Stowe of Lexington, Kentucky. Bishop Stowe is a Franciscan friar and has served as his order's vicar provincial before being named Bishop of Lexington in 2015. A longtime advocate for the poor and marginalized, Bishop Stowe also has been vocal in support of gospel nonviolence. He currently is a member of the U.S. Bishops Subcommittee on the Catholic Campaign for Human Development and is the Episcopal Moderator for the Catholic Peace Organization, Pax Christi USA. Pax Christi International's initial statement about the conflict in Israel and Palestine condemned the violence and called for a ceasefire. Regarding the October 7th attack by Hamas, the statement said, quote, Violence can never be justified, and all who commit heinous acts must be held to account. End quote. But the statement also said of Palestinians, quote, We stand firmly in solidarity with our brothers and sisters who have lived for over seven decades under a brutal military occupation or have been subjugated to an inhumane blockade. End quote. A subsequent statement from Pax Christi International called for full access to water, food, electricity, and other essential services in Gaza, and urged the international community to provide protection for civilians there. Pax Christi USA has noted the U.S. government's complicity in supporting the occupation and its, quote, unchecked military aid that will only lead to greater bloodshed, unquote. In an essay for Religion News Service in October, Bishop Stowe challenged President Joe Biden's assertion that he and Pope Francis were, quote, on the same page, end quote, about the crisis in Gaza, noting that the Pope has consistently rejected war as a tool for building peace. So we at Francis Effect thought 
Bishop Stowe would be the perfect person to talk with us about this very sad state of affairs. Welcome to the podcast, Bishop Stowe. Thank you, Heidi. It's good to be with you, and it's good to reflect on what's going on in Gaza and in the Middle East at this time, especially as Christians are preparing to celebrate the birth of the Prince of Peace and realize that once again in Bethlehem, there will be no formal Christmas celebrations this year. That's right. That's right. I read that. Now, we did have a week-long pause in the fighting, but now it has resumed, and we're recording this on Tuesday with news that the bombing and ground war has moved to southern Gaza. Reportedly, more than 15,000 Palestinians have been killed since October 7th, which is, of course, when Hamas militants crossed the border into Israel and killed 1,200 people. So many of the dead have been women and children. I know Pax Christie was calling for the ceasefire, but now that this particular pause has ended, is another ceasefire or a permanent ceasefire even possible? Well, we have to hope that a ceasefire is possible. And of course, we'd look for the long-term kind of ceasefire, because what happened in the one week where the firing or the bombing ended? Hostages were released, families were reunited. Not enough, but significant aid reached the folks that have been trapped in the Gaza, and they've had days without having to worry about bombs falling on them, rockets fired into their homes, and more and more death and destruction. So even a temporary ceasefire is a blessing. But of course, we need a permanent solution because the situation has gone on far too long. Yes, as we know, this most recent iteration of the conflict between these two groups started in response to the actions of Hamas militants who brutally killed and took hostage men, women, and children in Israel. Israel has called this terrorism, and it's hard to think about what has happened to their people. But what would you argue from the perspective of the Episcopal moderator of Pax Christi and a Catholic bishop would be the appropriate response? Israel has said they need to destroy Hamas, but and they're in this region with so many of their enemies. What do you think is necessary for their own self-defense? Sure. Well, first, I think it's important to clarify that even though Hamas is the representative of the government in Gaza, they don't have the support of most of the Palestinian people. The Palestinian people have not had elections in far too long. And they are represented now, unfortunately, on the world stage by an organization that denies Israel's right to exist. I don't know anybody that stands in solidarity with Palestine who defends what Hamas did. I think what many of us who are in solidarity with the Palestinians and sensitive to the claims of Israel and the importance of coexistence in that land would say that it's important to understand that the is the Palestinian people in Gaza, as well as in the West Bank, have been suffering for a long time. And they live in what has been described, I think, fairly accurately as an open air prison where there's no roof over their head, but they're walled in, they're gated in, and they don't have access to the basic things that would allow for them to prosper, to live in harmony and peace with each other. So as difficult as it is when we're used to having good guys and bad guys and know which side we want to be on. It is not impossible for people of faith, especially of the Christian faith, to say that, yes, we support Israel's right to existence. 
We recognize why that state was founded and when it was founded. We also recognize the Palestinians have lived in that place much longer and have a claim to that land. And there has to be a peaceful way to work out the claims that both sides have. Now, that peaceful way of doing it has eluded us for far too long. We've had temporary agreements and then only had them backed up. But as long as we have a government in Israel headed by Netanyahu, who does not think that Hamas should exist or that there should be a Palestinian state, or the Palestinians are represented by Hamas, who don't think that Israel should exist, there aren't many good prospects for peace. But when we look at the grassroots and we look at the people that are living in Palestine, in Gaza, in Israel, when we look at those who have suffered the loss of their loved ones, we find a whole lot more solidarity and common ground. There's an organization called the Parents Circle and Families that have more than 600 families on both sides of the conflict who have lost loved ones and who can come together and share their grief and mourning as well as their longing for a more peaceful coexistence. That's where the hope has to be. It's not going to be in governments that exist or political organizations that exist to destroy the other, but it's in finding mutual benefit in working together. So I know that I read that a number of the folks from Pax Christi USA, including some who have been doing some public demonstrating around these issues, have actually been to Israel-Palestine and met folks. Is that the case with you? I didn't know about your background, if you've ever been there. I do not have that exact direct experience. Yes, I've been with many of the people who are from there and people who have been there, but it's not yet my experience. Several times I had planned to go to the Holy Land or to visit places in Israel, and one thing or another, usually violence, kept that from happening. So I have not yet been there. Yeah, and I should give my personal disclosure that I have traveled to Israel and Palestine where I did meet Palestinians. This was in 1999, so this was quite a sort of at a break in between first and second intifadas. And I did go to Gaza where I saw a lot of suffering even 20 years ago. So in the current iteration of the violence, I know some people are using just war principles to evaluate particularly Israel's response. So this is part of our Catholic teaching or historically, and it allows for war in certain circumstances. And what is your thought about whether that applies in this circumstance. I know there's been a lot of critique of what's been called indiscriminate bombing on the part of Israel, and certainly we have had massive numbers of civilian casualties in the initial fighting and response. So what are you thinking about the just war and how that might apply here? Yeah, that's a very interesting and complex question right now. Pope Francis, and I would count myself in the number of Christians who think that the time for even talking about just war has passed us. The ability for terrible destruction and the use of nuclear weapons and modern warfare kind of makes it impossible to even speak about a just war. In fact, some of us would say that the word, the phrase just war is actually a contradiction in terms. War will never lead to justice. We have to find peaceful ways, lasting ways, where conflicted parties can come to some terms of agreement that, to which everybody can buy in, not winner takes all, and destroy the loser. Nonetheless, I have to say that in our tradition, the just war has been helpful. The just war theory 
has been helpful both in giving us principles in a fallen world, in a flawed world, in a world where not everybody shares the teachings of Jesus, the peacemaker who gave us the Sermon on the Mount, when we find aggression, when we find terrorism, when we find unjust attacks on innocent human beings, the just war theories criteria of calling what is appropriate has been a help. I would not say to justify a war. I think that's where the time is passed, but to evaluate principles of how unjust a war might be or how, how dramatic or how scaled the injustice of war is. Perhaps even more importantly are the principles, we're more familiar in the United States with the principles leading to war and declaring wars just or unjust. And even though the church, including previous popes, condemned things like the Gulf War and the Iraq War as unjust, we in the Catholic Church of the United States have almost largely ignored that because our patriotism is so strong and our belief in our unique approach to what is correct and right and just has often dominated that field. But even more than the principles leading to war are the principles in bellow or the principles that apply in war, which have to do with proportionality, which have to do with, okay, if war breaks out, it's not all fair and love and war. It's not that anything can go wrong. We still have to be proportionate. There still exist human rights. We still have to be careful about the targeting of innocent civilians. Now, in the present crisis, that's one of the difficult things to assess. When Israel makes the claim that Hamas is hiding it, its own weapons as well as its own militants behind innocent people, those claims have to be evaluated. It's hard to do that when war is going on. At the same time, we can say that indiscriminate bombing that's coming from Israel is not an appropriate response, even to the vicious terrorism that provoked this conflict. That event on October 7th is a new provocation, but in a long history of, of the two sides not being able to get along and in disproportionate suffering, we have to say on the Palestinian side, who do not have the access to the material things that Israel has. Yeah, like you said, too often it's in the aftermath or once a war is over that we're able to evaluate what the truth was about the different claims being made and actually decide whether just war principles applied or were transgressed. You mentioned earlier about the teachings of Jesus and the Prince of Peace, and I'm wondering if you think the principles of nonviolence could be used in this current crisis, if not just to solve this latest, like you said, this latest iteration of terrorism, but to, to help address some of this long-term conflict that has been going on between Israel and Palestine. Absolutely. And I firmly believe that Christians have to pay more attention to the nonviolent teachings of Jesus. We have to be more creative in doing the work of peacemaking and peace building. We have to understand the necessity of processes of reconciliation where we don't just end a conflict and everybody pretends that nothing happened, but we have to address the grievances, address the suffering, address the injustices that have happened. And for peacemaking to work, it's a lot slower than what nations are led to believe by attacks and by using military force to end conflicts. We can look to Russia and Ukraine and how long has that situation dragged on? 
Fortunately, there are groups within Ukraine who are providing peaceful resistance and building on those principles. But the far more powerful ones are those who have control of weapons and can drag out the war indefinitely. What's been happening for decades now in the Middle East between Palestine and Israel is unfortunate. But there is a movement among Christians particularly, but not only Christians, people of the Abrahamic religions, Jews and Muslims and Christians together who realize that there is no long-term solution that will result from violence. So the families group that I mentioned earlier that is coming together and sharing grief is one of the bright lights, one of the ways that the possibility of moving forward can happen. There are dialogue groups among young people in the Middle East that are going on between people in Gaza and the West Bank of the Palestinians and the Israelites. We're talking about their hopes for the future and their common humanity, but that's a lot more work than it is to try to resolve things with violence and with war. So what would you say to someone who said, well, that sounds well and good, but could it really work? And is it, maybe it's too idealistic to think about nonviolence as a way to solve big conflicts like this. Is it possible to make that pivot once war is already underway like that, like it is now? Well, there's no question it's very hard. There's no question that it's not an easy thing to do. But if somebody says it's not, it's not realistic, it's not practical in the real world, I think the quick response would be, well, how's war working for you? More and more destruction, more and more people living in fear, more and more loss of life, new generations being born into the sense of separation and hatred for one towards another. That can't be a lasting reality. So I think Pope Francis continues to tell us, well, you might call it unrealistic, but is the alternative realistic? Is the alternative possible? Or do we want to live in a world where just the victors are in total control? You mentioned Pope Francis, and I know he has been consistent in calling for a ceasefire, for a stop in the violence. And I was just wondering what you thought more generally about his response since this all started in October. Obviously, the war broke out in the middle of the church having its synod meetings as well. I know he got some pushback just recently when there was a report that he was warning Israel against committing terror and that use of the term terror, terrorism, to refer to Israel's actions as opposed to also what Hamas did was got some pushback from some Jewish groups, I know. But what do you think about the way he approaches it and how he's been responding in the midst of this since October? Francis has been a tireless advocate for peace and to promote dialogue and working together. Now, he also believes in the approach of, well, he uses the Italian word vicinanza, of getting near. So he prays, as we hear in the Angelus every Sunday, for he mentions his nearness to the people who are suffering in the Middle East, his nearness to those who are suffering in Ukraine. But because of that desire not to be aloof and not just to speak in general principles, he will often wade into terminology that is super sensitive. And when you're in the midst of violent attacks and reprisals, everything is supercharged. You can certainly make a legitimate case that cutting off the basic necessities of water and food and allowing aid to get in is akin to terror, if not a form of terror. 
You can say that what the people in Gaza have been living through for decades is akin to terror. It's not the one-time campaign that is as destructive as what Hamas did, but it's hard not to see a comparison in the kinds of violence that is being wreaked. The Pope wants to walk the fine line. He doesn't want to be seen as on one side or the other, if that would impede the ability to help bring about a peaceful dialogue. But at the same time, he can't ignore injustice and the violence that was already in place before the October 7th events. Well, you talk about the fine line that people have to walk. And I think the Pope and many of us, especially given the history of anti-Semitism around the world and even in our own church throughout its history, it's been very sad to see the hatred and violence against both Jewish and Palestinian people here in the United States break out since October. Most recently, I saw some sort of attack against a restaurant owner who was Jewish. And then also we had the recent shooting of those Palestinian students in Vermont. What is your response to that? And how can the church also help address the hatred on those levels that's happening in our own country? Right. It's so important that you bring that up. And it's so important to address the issue of anti-Semitism because we've seen that rise in really scary proportions in recent years, and especially since the current events beginning on October 7th. But the anti-Semitism has deep roots here and continues to manifest itself at various times. I find it unbelievable that some of the same people who are pro-Israel can be anti-Semitic. But on the other hand, I think you can be anti-Netanyahu's government and the approach and policies of Israel without being anti-Semitic. I think we've lost a lot of our ability for critical thinking. We are used to having our information spoon-fed to us by our preferred sources on the internet or on cable news. And when we're fed a steady diet that shows us one side or the other as the enemy, it's very easy to allow the emotionalism that is part of the way that some of these issues are presented to just foment more and more. If we were to engage once again in the principles of nonviolence, and, you know, it's like the oxymoron of Christian nationalism and so many people that demonstrate claiming to be Christians and demonstrate their xenophobia, they're afraid of anybody who's different, whether they're Palestinian or Israeli, whether they're Jewish or Muslim, and whether they even know the difference. Sometimes it's because they're from that part of the world, from the Arab part of the world that people react or resist. So it's another complex, but not terribly sophisticated, if that makes any sense, kind of reaction. But we have to denounce anti-Semitism. There's no room for a categorical dismissal of any race, religion, or a group of people. That There's just no place for that. Well, you hit the nail on the head, I think, when you talked about the loss of critical thinking. And I know that even for us here on the podcast, it has made us reticent to speak out about this particular issue because, like you said, there's this pressure to make one side the 100% bad guy and the other one 100% correct in the situation. So do you think that 
it's a fair response for Christians to say we both support our Jewish brothers and sisters and are horrified by the violence perpetuated by Hamas, but also critique, like you said, either Netanyahu's government or the response by Israel in which so many Palestinians are suffering and dying. Is it possible to have that more complex thinking? Uh, I think we have to, because I think the truth, that is much closer to the truth than any broad strokes that can appear as prejudiced against one side or the other. Let's do what Pope Francis is always encouraging us to do and what this Advent season really calls us to think about is let's look at the humanity here. Jews and Muslims, Christians, all people are made in the image and likeness of God. That's got to be the basis from which we start. And because we're made in the image of likeness of God, we have certain basic human rights. We have a basic human dignity that has to be honored. Now, I'm sure I've said something that inadvertently would offend one side or the other, especially hardliners on either side. But we follow the Jewish Messiah, who is the Prince of Peace, who comes from Palestine. We have seen so many depictions of Palestinian mothers holding children, suffering children in their arms that look so much like the Madonna and child that is depicted at Christmas time. We can't separate that part of the world from our own Christian tradition. And yet we have to appreciate the terrible irony that it is that in the birthplace of the Prince of Peace, it's too dangerous to celebrate. Yeah. So you you noted that without the celebration in Bethlehem this year, the timing of this happening in the Christmas season is particularly, like you said, in a sad irony. But is there any you know, we're celebrating Advent, we're looking for the hope in the darkness in our liturgical year. Is there any hope that you see in this situation during this Advent season? The hope comes from those families who are hoping and longing for a better day tomorrow that are clear about their ability and their desire to forgive even the terrible harms that have been done to them, but at the same time can act for justice. It's the people that want to have a more representative government, both in Israel and among the Palestinians, the people that are looking to Christian principles or the principles of their own faith to emphasize the humanity of the other and not to demonize the other. There are so many examples of those coming from the suffering communities that there has to be hope. And now we have to make sure that those people would have voices and that those voices could be joined together and that they might find an echo and support in our Catholic community, the larger Christian community, and people of all faiths here, even in a very sensitive time, to say, let's look at the common humanity and work to eliminate the suffering that violence continues to perpetrate. Well, thank you, Bishop Stowe, for sharing those thoughts with us, and we really appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I think we have our Advent meditations right in front of us right now. Every year we begin the holy season of Advent, hearing from the prophet Isaiah about when nations will beat swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, and lions and lambs will lie down together. And it strikes me every Advent how far we are from that reality. But we've been given the path. We've been given the teachings. The Prince of Peace has come and has shown us the way. So let's make sure that we root out the violence that exists within each of our own hearts and the intolerance and try to see the humanity even of the person that we disagree with the most 
or consider our enemy. That's the way forward. I suppose I should give you a chance if you'd like to plug. I believe Pax Christi USA has some Advent resources as well, correct? On our uh, PaxChristiUSA.org website, there are some wonderful prayer opportunities. There are ways to plug into praying communities online, as well as the typical Pax Christi response, which is always prayer, study, and action. All three of those are highlighted there. I'd also point out Pax Christi International's website and the activities that, that they are promoting. It's a little harder when they work on European time based in Belgium, but things can be watched after the fact if you can't participate in them live. We'll link to those in our show notes. And of course, the statements that I mentioned earlier in the segment, we are on those websites as well. So again, thank you so much, Bishop John Stowe, for joining us at the Francis Effect. We wish you a blessed Advent as well. You too, Heidi. Thank you. Hello, this is David. Normally, we would run an edited version of the interview, and I would encourage you at this point to go to our Patreon site to hear the full audio. But we felt like this interview was too important to put in an edited form in the full show. So we just want to thank our Patreon supporters for making conversations like this possible. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment with our pop culture roundup. Thank you again for listening. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Well, we've come to the end of season 13. This season has included a lot of heavy and distressing subjects, which we hope that we have engaged thoughtfully and seriously. As we look forward to our holiday break, we thought we'd go out on a bit of a lighter note. So welcome to another Pop Culture Roundup, where we take a few minutes to share what we've been reading, watching, and listening to lately. Dan, why don't you get us started? What has been on your entertainment horizon lately? Oh my gosh. This is one of my favorite segments that we do over the course of these last 13 seasons, and I find myself looking forward to it. And then when I sit down to jot some notes about what have I been reading, listening to, watching, experiencing, I start to draw a blank. But I'm often, in the light of our conversation, prompted to recall this, that, the other when we get going. But a couple things. I don't know if we want to talk about genres versus TV versus books versus music versus movies or what have you, podcasts and the like. Well, maybe I'll just start with TV, a couple series that, that I've either recently been engaged in or have watched. There's a series called Lessons in Chemistry based on a best-selling book that I really, no really No spoilers, enjoyed. please. No, no spoilers. spoilers. Are you watching that now? Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually uh, have the book on my nightstand and I want to read the book first before I watch it. So. Well, I was talking with a friend who's seen the series and has read the book, read the book first. And they said that the book, it's actually... Not different. The story is the same, but the way that the series presents it is different. So that's great. I haven't, I didn't read the book, but I enjoyed the series. As of yesterday, I finished the most recent season of The Morning Show, which is another good one, very intense. I think like many people, I've watched the first four episodes of the final season of The Crown. I'm eager to see how that turns out. And I was thinking about a TV show that, that, I, that I watch regularly. It's not a one and done series like this, but I've really come in my reflection over the last couple of weeks to appreciate 
very much the John Oliver program on HBO called Last Week Tonight. I've always enjoyed it, but I found myself at Thanksgiving in a lot of really interesting conversations with family and friends around some of the themes that had been engaged in recent episodes of that show. So a shout out to John Oliver. Yeah. What TV have you guys been watching? Well, I'll say I've also been watching a couple that you have been watching. So we finished, we, my husband and I watched Morning Show, and we had a love-hate relationship with that show. I think they're so few redeemable characters on it. It was hard to like anyone, although there was something slightly redeemable towards the end. So we did watch that, and we're also watching The Crown, which is also a sad story. I don't know. Like we, like you said in the opener there, David, there's so much heaviness going on that sometimes we just need a break and need to watch something funny. So my husband and I have discovered two, coincidentally, two Australian shows about divorced, well, one is a widow, divorced and a widow women. And they're these comedies that are just quirky and super funny. So one is called Fisk. And she's this lawyer. And it I mean, it may not be everybody's cup of tea, but we think it's absolutely hysterical. And the other one is called Frayed. It's a little more of a drama comedy slash comedy. But they both start with F. They're both Australian. They both involve these women characters. And we found them, and they're shorter episodes, we found them to be a great escape. What about you, David? Well, so we have been going back to the old favorites in the Dalt household. So we have been watching, for my wife and me, it's rewatched, but for the kids, it's for the first time, the entire series of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And so we're now in season five. And watching our kids experience this has been fascinating and has led to some really interesting conversations. And my wife and I have also gone back and begun to rewatch one of my favorite shows, Community. It's comfort food for us. But some things that have also been on the radar lately, we have watched a couple of the Mike Flanagan series on Netflix. So we watched The Midnight Club, which we were late to come to. I believe it was released around Halloween last year, but we just watched it around Halloween this year. And it was phenomenal. I cannot stress highly enough how excellently acted, excellently written, and emotionally on point that series was. It was just well executed, and I'm heartbroken that there's only one season of it, and they decided not to make a second season. And then we went and we watched Mike Flanagan's version of The Fall of the House of Usher, which is a very different tone of show than The Midnight Club. It took me a little bit to get into it because it was so stylized and so formal in its approach. But by the end of it, I was really hooked on it. And I I think in both cases, it's really dealing with some heavy emotional material in a very entertaining way and in a way that really draws the audience in using horror as a vehicle, but without necessarily hitting you over the head with gore or jump scares or things like that. I'm a huge fan of Edgar Allan Poe, and I was very much looking forward to that series. And that was one that I forgot to put on my list, but I did also watch and watched all the way through. It is, I imagine, not everybody's cup of tea. And so I think we should disclaim that because it is the horror genre. It's dark, man. It's dark. <laughs> it's really dark. And there's one episode in particular that was really tough to watch. I mean, they're all tough in their own way. But what I appreciated about that was for the creators of the show and the writers, they, it wasn't just what I thought it was going to be when I first heard the adaptation coming, which was going to be like a limited series with different short stories of pose, like the Telltale Heart or the Black Cat or the Cask of Amontillado and that sort of thing. Instead, the House of Usher, which also is an allegory for, I would say, big pharma today. It's very similar to a lot of what's going on in, in our contemporary times. 
becomes the kind of the centerpiece in the tapestry into which all these little Poe Easter eggs are woven together. So there are these sub stories like the story of the black cat or the telltale heart. But I just thought it was brilliantly done, well acted. It is very stylized to David's point and really enjoyed that. It felt like an appropriate homage to Poe's 19th century Gothic sort of style. And I have to say there were some exchanges, no spoilers here, but there were some exchanges between the patriarch of the House of Usher and his interlocutor where there were these, almost at times, the whole of a Poe poem. Like most people are familiar with The Raven. That's probably his most famous poem. But other famous poems of his like Annabelle Lee and others came up and I just was eating it up. I thought it was really good. So David, I'm so glad to hear that you watched that as well. I always learn something new about you guys in these <laughs> pop culture things. Like I had no idea you were a big Gary Allan Poe fan and I'm not a horror genre person. So even though I was jotting all these down, now I just crossed that one out. <laughs> but maybe we can move to movies and I can be brief because I have not been to the movies, I don't think, since we last did one of these. But in an anticipatory way, I see that there's a new movie about Willy Wonka coming out in December. And our family, kids, were all big fans of the story. And so that's on my to-watch list over the Christmas holidays. But maybe you guys have seen more movies than I have. I'll just say on the Willy Wonka thing, I, I like Timothy Chalamet. I think that he's a fairly good actor. I Wonka is not like my big thing. I don't like it that much. So I don't know if, if I see it, I might see it on a plane someday. But I will say that I did, when I was in high school, go to a showing with some anniversary of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And Peter Ostrom, who plays the kid, plays Charlie, who is now, he, that was like his one acting thing as a child actor, left, became a veterinarian, a, a large animal veterinarian, and lives in central New York. He was there at this historic 20th century theater in downtown Utica for this big production. And I and my friend sat right behind him. And so that was something that that's always stayed with us 25, 30 years later. is like being, sitting behind the actor who played little Charlie, and he it just seemed like he was like having none of it, but his wife was laughing hysterically the whole time because I think she loved every minute of seeing him on the big screen. It was really an experience. David, have you been seeing any good movies? I forgot about movies on a plane. I guess I did see some going to Rome and back, but I can't even remember what they were. <laughs> well, one of the things that my wife and I do is occasionally we go back to series of films, either that have similar themes but are unrelated in their production or just will watch like the entire Bourne ultimatum franchise or whatever. But one thing that we've done a couple of times is to go back and watch a series of films that look at the the trial of the Chicago 7 and the the Pentagon Papers. I'm forgetting the name of the particular movie with Meryl Streep that is about the release of the Pentagon Papers, but it leads right directly into All the President's Men. And then right after that, we, we watch Spotlight because it all has a similar theme of investigative reporting and these large newspapers that are unearthing. And so I would recommend doing that kind of sequence where you watch the Netflix show on the Chicago 7, and then you watch the Meryl Streep film about the Pentagon Papers. Yeah, The Post. That's Yeah, The Post, and then, and then All the President's Men, and then Spotlight. And then I'd add to it also a related, unrelated film called The Report, which is about the attempt to account for the United States practices of torture. And again, just these are 
heavy films, but they all lend themselves to one another. And if you watch them back to back, it will radicalize you. It will. (laughs) (laughs) And be still my journalism heart. Exactly. We we do this two or three times a year. We watch these in sequence over the course of a week, and it's just delightful. And then for Lighter Fair, we just watched the new Mike Birbiglia special called The Old Man in the Pool, which is exquisitely good, as Mike Birbiglia usually is. Yeah, he's one of my favorites. His stand-up, I haven't seen all of his one-person shows of this. This is the latest, I know, of the series that he's been doing both on Broadway and then for Netflix. But yeah, he's got some memorable jokes that stay with me all the time. In the spirit of rewatching things, I, I will say the montage of journalism movies that you were talking about, David, and mentioning like the Bourne series, which I also really enjoy. I think that's a great series. I'm a huge fan of the director, Christopher Nolan. And we talked earlier in the year about Oppenheimer and or Barbie Heimer for that matter. Loved Oppenheimer, absolutely loved it. But I think actually Heidi was on my flight back from Rome because you have you're they're there for hours upon hours. I think it was then that I rewatched Interstellar, which I haven't seen in a while by Christopher Nolan. And I forgot how good that was. And I was thinking about it so much. I actually, within a week of coming back, having watched it on the plane, I watched it again. I mean, it was occupying my thinking so much as a lot of Nolan's movies can do. But then in terms of new movies, when I was home at Thanksgiving with my family, we watched the new Mission Impossible movie that's available for streaming now. It's part one of I guess if you consider them together, it's like the Kill Bill series. It's six hours of a movie, but the first half has been released. I saw the latest David Fincher movie, The Killer, on Netflix, which was very good as well. Again, that's if you're like a kind of action thriller sort of movie in the spirit of like the Bourne series. A movie I watched recently, and it's probably the the only time I've been in a movie theater as such since the summer, one of these days where I just needed to decompress and just be in a different space. And I went to see a movie that I've been wanting to see since it's been announced, and that is Saltburn, which was written and directed by the Academy Award-winning director and writer of A Promising Young Woman, which was nominated for Best Director a couple years ago. She didn't get the Best Director Award, but she did win the Oscar for the writing of the original screenplay. And she wrote and directed this as well. So her name is Emerald Fennel, and it's a very good movie. It's based on the previews or the trailer, it's not what it seems to be. So I don't know if that's enticing or not, but like Interstellar, I've been thinking about it a lot since I saw it. So I do recommend that if that's that your kind of genre. The one thing I'm looking forward to as well that's out now in limited release, but I look forward to watching is this movie starring Paul Giamatti called The Holdovers about a boarding school and the kids who have nowhere to go during the Thanksgiving or Christmas break. And that looks very interesting. I'm also interested in seeing the new Scorsese film, Killers of the Flower Moon, which I haven't seen yet, mostly because it requires a block of four hours to watch the three and a half hour plus movie. So I've heard good things about it. The general response has been positive. So I look forward to seeing that when I'm able, probably not in the theater because of the time commitment. So I don't know what you guys are reading lately. I know we all read for our living. (laughs) And so I'm, for example, in the middle of Mary Jo McConaughey's book, Playing God, that's for a piece that I'm working on, and I'll be talking to her later this week. But for fun, I want to thank one of my friends, Professor Michelle Nickerson from Loyola, who handed me a bunch of books that she had finished. I can't remember if I talked about it on this show or not before, about how I read The Matrix, which is not a book about 
AI. <laughs> it's actually a book about a women's religious community, a monastery in medieval times, and by Lauren Lauren Groff, who, Groff, who yes. we hosted here at the Center for the Study of Spirituality the night before the announcement of the National Book Award, which she was one of the five finalists for. So Lauren oh. Groff is wonderful. Shout out to Lauren Groff. She's fantastic. Was this the National Book Award or was it her previous her book? That was no, The, the Matrix book? was the one that was, well, she's been nominated. She's been a finalist for the National Book yeah. Award three, three times. Sadly, has not yeah. won it yet. And I'm not a big fan of historical fiction, but I really love this book. And it's based on a loosely on a real person that not much is known about. So feminist people, I think, will enjoy it. It's about what if women ran the world, kind of. <laughs> so that's a good book that I've read recently. But that same friend also gave me Lessons in Chemistry, which is on my nightstand. And then also another friend, don't I have gen generous friends, <laughs> uh, gave me the new book by Abraham Verghese. So I, if you don't, he wrote Cutting for Stone, which is an amazing book. It's probably, I, I hesitate to say like I have a favorite book in my whole life, but it's one of my favorite, most favorite novels. And I mostly read women authors. So this is a man, he's an Indian man who had lived in Ethiopia. And Cutting for Stone is just an amazing book. Now his new book is called The Covenant of Water. So I can go next. I I read for a living and write for a living. And so I'm constantly reading books, mostly for work, right? For classes, for research that I'm doing, for lectures, that sort of thing. And so it's a professional hazard of sorts that I read a lot. But I, I've read one book recently that has stayed with me. In fact, I've mentioned it in previous episodes on the podcast here, which is Naomi Klein's new book, Doppelganger. And I have found that to be very engaging. I'm impressed by I mean, she's a very talented writer to begin with, but impressed by how she's able to weave her own experience of sort of a bizarre doppelganger encounter or series of encounters with a kind of general social theory and political theory of how doppelganger works, not just in literature and in film and art, which she does draw on as well, but how it functions like in our weirdly polarized and divisive times. How to explain, for instance, not just in, in kind of major national, international levels, but like even in our own families or communities where somebody seems to be one way for a long time. And then we might think like, how does this person end up in the Capitol on January 6th, right? Or folks like this, or QAnon folks, or we see this as well in the church, of course, right? Supporting somebody like Vigano or something like this. So I think it's an excellent book. It's not fiction, so it's not a, an engaging story in that way, but it is a, it's an engaging nonfiction text. I feel like I've learned a lot from. And for me, like we both have said, most of the books I've been reading lately have been heavy academic titles, but the two that have really stood out for me, one is a fresh read, the other is a reread. So I've been rereading Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited. And if you've never encountered that book, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's short, it's a little over 100 pages, but every page is just full of moral depth and seriousness. And it will really, I think, help to ground the way that you think about your walk in the Christian faith. So I like to return to that book on a regular basis, and so this reread has been helpful to me. The other, and I haven't encountered this before, is a book of essays by Audre Lorde called Sister Outsider, and every single one of those essays has just knocked it out of the park for me in terms of helping me to understand, to reconsider, to reclassify, and reconstitute, again, my ethical approaches as a person of faith. And thinking about 
what it means to say that I am in solidarity with the least of these. I can't. I just want to recommend those two books. If you're looking for something good to read over the holidays, you can't go wrong with either of those. And I also want to ask the two of you, are you listening to any music or am I the only guy that does that? I only listen to the same old thing. I feel so unhip. I don't, now that I'm officially in my 40s, I think it's to be expected, but I've been like this since I was a teenager, which is I know what I like and I know what I don't. So my music tastes don't change all that often and I'm slow to to pick up on the latest music, though I'm not a curmudgeon about it. I do enjoy newer music. So I'm not listening to music. I do have two new podcasts I want to give shout outs to. New to me, one that's actually new and one that's new to me. The one that's relatively new in general is a New York Times podcast that I've really been enjoying called Matter of Opinion. Really used to enjoy the argument where Michelle Goldberg and Ross Douthat were the co-hosts. It's changed its format quite a bit in the last couple of years. Jane Koston, who's another New York Times columnist or op-ed editor, is the host there now. And it's just a different style. And I haven't enjoyed it as much, but the Matter of Opinion comes out every Friday morning, and it's four columnists who really get into a great conversation about a particular topic. And I really enjoy it. I have tremendous respect for all four of those people as they're engaging in this issue. But something on a much more lighthearted note, this is not technically a new podcast. In fact, I think it has suspended. It's no longer going, but it's been re-released from about three years ago. And it's a comedy podcast called Bananas for Bonanza. And it is the brainchild of the, the actor and comedian Andy Daly, with Maria Bamford and Matt Gorley. And the premise is basically it's a satire of all of these podcasts that go back, like the Friends podcast or the Office Ladies podcast, where people go back and revisit episode by episode, like breakdown episodes. So the they play characters, these three actors and comedians, they play characters that are hilarious in their own right, including Maria Bamford, who runs a multi-level marketing pyramid scheme based on Christian products. And it's very funny. Her store is called Lot's Daughters. It's very funny. But they break down each of the Bonanza episodes, beginning from episode one of the 431 Bonanza episodes that aired. And I don't think I've ever seen a whole episode of Bonanza. And I don't think I want to. But I do enjoy their kind of comedic, funny, smart, quick what do you call it, a kind of improv analysis in the modes of the characters that they're playing while reviewing these episodes from 50 years ago. And it's just, it's one of those things that's absurdly funny and makes me laugh from the gut. And every now and then I put one of these things on because it's in the world that we live in, you just need that kind of hilarity sometimes. What about you? What about you, Heidi? What are you listening to? I'm equally unhip and not <laughs> on top of cool music. I did go, I think I mentioned this, I went to a concert at the end of summer, the OAR concert. And so my Spotify end of the year has all these OAR songs on it. And I didn't even share it because I thought, oh, I only have this like one band. Mostly. Hey, crazy game of poker. That's a, <laughs> and I love, I love OAR. I love the concert and I don't have any other concerts on my, on my lineup either. So that's a bummer. I know I'm excited and this will show my age here. I'm excited about the new Stones CD that came out. So maybe I'll listen to that. And the Rolling Stones are coming to Chicago, which I won't be able to afford to go to, but I live vicariously through my sister-in-law who goes to like almost every Rolling Stones concert. So how about you, David? Raise the hipness fa factor for our podcast for us. Could you please? <laughs> well, I don't know about hipness, but... Uh... 
in terms of obscure things that have been on my radar. So I am constantly trying to explore new music. And two that have really made it on my radar, and they're related because I learned of the one because of the other. The first is a Canadian by the name of Andrew Huang. I really got into them because he gives these creative challenges to others. Like he'll take a little snippet of sound and he'll have four different music producers take those snippets of sound and turn them into full-blown songs. And so I really got interested in how the different creators would use the same stimulus in vastly different directions. And he also works with, and I forget the name of his collaborator, but he has a collaborator that every year, one day out of the year, on like October 1st, he gets together with this collaborator and they rec- they they write and record an entire album in one day. And October 1st, 2023, so a couple months ago, they booked Abbey Road, where the Beatles recorded, and they went in and they created basically an album from scratch. It was the total tightrope sort of risk of, we have spent a lot of money to be here, we've literally flown across an ocean to be here, and we're walking in with nothing in our pockets except just our love for each other and our love for music. And by the end of the day, they literally set a timer, and over the course of 12 hours, they recorded. I think nine songs and they're good songs. They're re- and it's just, it's an amazing sort of exercise to watch this go both in terms of just the finished album, which they have on YouTube, but also they have an hour and a half video of just snippets of their process. And you see how they work together and how it really is like the Chicago improv thing of they never say no to an idea. They say it, it could be better but they're constantly encouraging each other and they're constantly saying yes and trying to figure out a way to take the input of the other and use it creatively. So it's very inspiring to watch. So Andrew Huang, H-U-A-N-G is the YouTuber's name. But through this YouTuber, I also discovered an LA-based producer who, and I forget her name, but she goes by the stage name of Dressage, D-R-E-S-A-G-E. And I've really fallen down the rabbit hole She is meticulous about the way that she thinks about sound and especially the way that she thinks about the use of silence. And her music has really grabbed me and I've just been enjoying the heck out of discovering what she has been doing. She was one of these producers that Andrew Huang used to take a sound and turn it into a full-blown song. And usually I'm interested in that and yeah, the songs are okay. Her song, which is called Holy, just grabbed me by the shirt lapels and was like, listen to this. So I've really enjoyed discovering that, and I'm happy to share it with our listeners. So I'll put it in the show notes. You can't go wrong with Andrew Huang and Dressage, both wonderful choices for your holiday listening enjoyment. (laughs) Heidi said earlier, I feel like I I learned so much when we talk about these things. It's, It's great. We yeah. do. And I hope our listeners enjoy it as well, finding out the quirks of our pop culture interests. <laughs> <laughs> and how unhip we are, I think. Yes. <laughs> well, folks, that brings us to the end of season 13. We are so glad that you have been with us for these conversations. Please keep telling your friends about the show. Please keep writing to us about things that we could be doing better and helping us to think about ways in which we can be improving the show. And in particular, please know that as you move into the holiday season, it's not always the same experience for everybody. You are in our prayers, and we hope that we are in yours, and we are so grateful for all 
that you bring to the world. And we look forward to being back with you in January for season 14. Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.